the, uh, the moral of the story is, uh, I know many of you have been proficient in memorizing Jesus wept, which is a great accomplishment on your part, but I'm pretty sure that if a four-year-old can stand up here and recite scripture, one of the things that should challenge us is our memorization of the word, amen? And uh, the reality is many of you, if not most of us, have spent all of zero time memorizing scripture. And uh, I, I remember being seven years old, uh, reciting Psalm 1, uh, 110 right in front of everyone. And, and that scripture still rings true in my heart. And so just um, an encouragement to us as we sit up and watch our, aren't our kids awesome, man? Just love them. They're so, God has blessed us. And we just had another baby yesterday in the family. Incredible. Another Astrebe baby. So it should be a lot of fun. May we be a church that doesn't just read the word and study the word, but memorize the scriptures. And I think what we'll find is that through memorization that our hearts and what we speak will simply start to become the Word of God. And that would be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? So uh, starting about in the middle of the Gospel of Luke, um, which, by the way, if, if you're just joining us here, just tuning in, uh, we've been studying the Gospel of Luke for nearly two years. It's been a, a beautiful Gospel. The Gospel of Luke is one of the three synaptic Gospels, which means really nothing for most of you. It just means it's one of the first three of the uh, three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, Gospel, the good news about the life of Christ. There's four Gospels that specifically speak about that, and Dr. Luke is the one we've been studying. Now, about halfway through the Gospel of Luke, we've been learning about um, what's now called the travel narrative. It's when Jesus turns from Galilee and heads towards this ancient city named Jerusalem. Now, in Jerusalem... He's headed there because he knows he's going to die. He has spent a lot of his ministry around uh, the Sea of Galilee, which is just north of that. But then he heads south to Jerusalem. I will spell it J-E-R so none of us get confused. Now, um, what happens in Jerusalem around the time that we've been studying called the Passover is uh, an ancient uh, uh, Jewish historian, Josephus, writes that the population of Jerusalem would double or triple around the Passover time. It's a lot like when Wentzville has a rodeo, you know? It's the population just flocks there. But around the Passover time, we've learned that it's like the 4th of July. You stay up late, you celebrate, you experience life with one another, celebrating this ancient tradition. Jerusalem blows up at the Passover time. But what's happened in exactly the point that we've been studying now is Jesus died on Friday. Saturday, he's in the tomb. Sunday, he raises from the dead. And what happens when, when the Passover is over is most people begin to head home. For Pontius Pilate, he heads home to a place called Caesarea. They begin the journeys back home. Some people stay for the Feast of Weeks or what will later be called the Pentecost, which is 50 days after the Passover, but most head home. So Pontius heads home to Caesarea. It's very probable that blind Bartimaeus, remember him, blind Bartimaeus heads home if he happened to follow Jesus to Jerusalem, heads home to a little village called Jericho. Everyone is scattering. Everyone's heading home. It's possible that there were some individuals that headed south to Bethlehem. But the study that we looked at last week was this beautiful story about two individuals, one named Cleopas, Please name all of your children that. And this other individual who's unnamed, they journey to this little village called Emmaus. Now, Emmaus is 60 stadia or about seven miles away from Jerusalem. And they 
walk there, right? Many of you haven't walked seven miles your entire life combined, but they do that. It's ancient times. They don't have cars, okay? I didn't know if you knew that. Just a a, a little um, slideshow for you there. But the reality is, is something crazy happens on this journey to Emmaus. You see, Jesus that morning on the first day of the week, which was Sunday, raises from the dead. And all of a sudden, as they're walking and talking, Scripture says about all the things that have just happened in Jerusalem, namely the death of Christ. All of a sudden, Jesus walks up into their conversation. They don't recognize it's Jesus. In fact, Scripture says that they were kept from recognizing Him. But all of a sudden, Jesus comes up and says, Hey, uh, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, Are you kidding me? Are you the only one in Jerusalem that hasn't heard what's happened in these days? And Jesus very poignantly goes, what things? I love that, right? And, and they begin to tell them, like, well, there was this, this man named Jesus, and he, you, you remember the word? Was a prophet, good in word and deed. And not just that, they later say, we thought he was going to be the one to redeem Israel. They share all of their, all of their heart with them, lay it all on the table. But friends, something I want to focus on right now is the Scripture said that these two people were downtrodden or distracted or upset or uh, long-faced. They were distressed. They were saddened. My question is, why were these guys sad? It's a question that we didn't wrestle with last week to to the fullest extent. Of course they're saddened. Because what they had hoped for in Christ doesn't appear to be happening. They thought He would restore Israel. And and because it's now the afternoon of the third day, it certainly seems like He's not going to raise from the dead or at least be the Messiah that they were expecting. Remember, they thought He was going to come and wipe out the Roman Empire. So why are they saddened? Uh, After last week, I've been pondering that question And I want to share this with you. Even though the scripture doesn't say it, we can assume that it's true. These guys, who are disciples, even though they're not part of the 11 or the 12, they've been around Christ, we don't know for how long, but they've seen the healings. They have witnessed the miracles. They've heard the teachings. And you cannot tell me that if they believed Jesus was the Messiah, which Scripture said they did, that He would not have told, or that they would not have told other people. Of course they would have. If they believed that He was the Messiah, they would have been like, hey, hey, they would have gathered all their friends. We need to tell you something. We've been waiting for a long time in this great nation of Israel for one that would come and save us. And let me tell you, He's here. In fact, He's right over there. See Him over there? That's Him, Jesus, you know? Give a little sea bass, you know? Like they're, they're, they're excited. And so they're telling people and they're communicating, this is the Christ. This is Messiah. So why are they sad? Friends, is there any heavier weight when you share something with someone and you perceive it later to not be true? This has happened to many of us. We've told someone something. Maybe it was through gossip or just a story that we thought would be true. And the funny part, I communicated to a lot of people millions last year that the Cubs would win the World Series. Right? Like, that's a silly one. But for many of us, we've shared deep truths 
that we thought and perceived to be true that later weren't. And the weight of that, when it was found out to be true, can you imagine the looks? Maybe these guys were on the Via Della Rosa. Maybe they're around for the, for the trial. We don't know. But some of the looks from some of the friends that they had said he was the Messiah as the cross is on his back. Can you, can you picture in your mind the looks? The sneers from the friends who they had told, this is the guy. The looks of... Like, you said this guy was going to be the one. And he's got a cross on his back? They were liable and responsible for their comments. And so they walk away from Jerusalem saddened because Jesus wasn't who they thought he would be. And they had told several people that. And they carried that weight. They carried that burden with them. And friends, there are several weights that I want you to feel tonight. And that's one of the first. Can you imagine that feeling telling friends of yours that he was the Christ and then having them believe that he wasn't. Tonight, we pick up right in the middle of this amazing conversation. You remember at the end of last week, Jesus opened the entire Old Testament to these guys. That would have been pretty sweet, eh? He teaches them. He exposits to them how the entire Old Testament was pointing to himself. He finally connects in their minds how the suffering servant and the Son of Man has to work together. In other words, the Son of Man, who would be the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, must suffer. And last week I ended how Jason began tonight. By asking every single one of you, why do you believe or not believe that He is risen? Many of us grew up in the church, and our answer to that was the Bible tells me so. Problem with that answer is that the culture doesn't think the Bible is true. Jason tonight talked about his experience with the risen Christ. He articulated, yes, that the Bible tells me so, but that my heart has been wholeheartedly changed by the Gospel. And so I begin tonight asking you the same question, again asking God to connect head and heart, again asking God to do something supernatural. Why do you believe or not believe that He is risen and resurrected and sitting on His throne, reigning as the Lord, my friends? That's the question. So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24. We'll begin in verse 28. Turn there if you could. If you've noticed, this is the last uh, chapter of Luke. Just a couple more journeys through uh, the Gospel of Luke here and we'll be moving on. Are you guys all there? Say I'm there. Verse 28. This is pretty funny. I like this. As they approached the, the village to which they were going, which is Emmaus, again, a close a walk to Jerusalem, Jesus acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, stay with us, for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. Uh, I love this. Even though I know that Jesus wasn't, this wasn't his intent, what I think of, have you guys ever been around a friends of yours that invited themselves to something without you inviting them? You're right. You know, like a, couple, a bunch of your buddies are going bowling or something, and a friend of yours finds out that, that you're going bowling, but you haven't invited them. So he like comes up on the group and he's like, "Man, be awesome to go bowling tonight." You know, I don't know what you guys are doing, but you know, and you're like, "Well, actually, we're 
going bowling. You want, you know, you got the bowling bag in your, you know, you kind of feel bad. It's like, it's like one of those, it's like one of those weird moments where Jesus acts like he's going farther. In reality, he wants this conversation to keep going, but he's holding them responsible. We talk about time and time and time again, God's sovereignty does not negate personal responsibility. These guys, yes, are hospitable. We can say that. But let me tell you something about the culture. The farther you traveled away from Jerusalem at night, things got bad. There were many robbers around, okay? And so the farther you journeyed away from the mass city Jerusalem, the better chance you had of being robbed or beaten or worse, you know? And so it was a hospitable thing as things turned to evening to welcome someone in your house. And so, yes, they're being hospitable. Yes, Jesus acted like, not deceived, like he was going on farther. There's something else happening here, I believe. These guys have just heard Jesus exposit the Old Testament. And so to me, when I see two guys saying, no, 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 let's stay with us. It's two guys saying, like, there's got to be more. There has to be more. They're hungry. Like they didn't get enough. I envy those two guys. I envy that sense of being able to hear Jesus exposit the word and then feeling like I haven't had enough, that there has to be more. I envy that because I don't feel that way often enough. My word time, sometimes so fleeting, sometimes so routine. That A, I don't hear the voice of Christ. B, I haven't prayed to hear the voice of Christ. And C, I walk away feeling like I've already gotten my due. When will there be a time when we crave more of Christ so much that we're like, no! I can feel you here. I'm hearing you here. Don't go anywhere, please! As I've been learning about prayer, the more I keep learning about the pleadings to the throne of Christ as their great high priest, how they need to be heard. Friends, when was the last time you sat in your closet with the word open and you were just like, no, 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 don't go anywhere. This is, just keep feeding me. Man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Is that how you're eating, friends? Is that how you're feeding? Or have you become so indulgent with the things of this world that the word can't even penetrate. These two guys are like, Jesus, don't go anywhere. Come in and stay with us. Something amazing happens in verse 30. Check this out. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Now this is a little bit strange, wouldn't you agree? This would be like Heidi and I having a Jason and Heather over and all the kids and we're getting ready to enjoy a nice time. And uh, you know, we've invited them over to our house. And Jason proceeds to go to the oven, you know, like grab the roast out of the oven. We don't make roast in the oven, but work with me, you know? And and then he like, you know, like goes over to the table and sets the table. And I'm like sitting there like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, bro, hey, we invited you over. This is our house. Like, just sit back, you know. And then he goes get and he gets the breadsticks, you know. And Heather's tossing the salad. And like me and Heidi are in the living room, just chill. Like, that's weird. If you invite someone over to your house, you would expect that you would be the one that was doing the hosting. 
Isn't it interesting to you that these two individuals, one Cleopas and another unnamed, stop at a house which they were headed to, they welcome in Jesus as their guest, and the Christ becomes the host. This is crazy. And not just that, but he breaks bread, gives thanks, serves it to them. Now, if you've been with us at all, just a little bit earlier in the Scriptures, we saw Jesus break the bread, serve the cup, and serve the Last Supper, communion to His disciples. Now, the commentators don't believe that this is a communion service. But we can say this for sure, that as He breaks the bread, and as He serves it and gives thanks... That his prayers, after just having spoken the Old Testament and how it all points back to him, this moment was about remembering himself. He gives thanks probably for himself. Gives thanks for what God is doing through his life. This is a magical moment. He becomes the host, but friends, there's so much more. Listen to this. Um, Jesus is now resurrected. He's not ascended yet. That'll happen in the early parts of Uh, of Acts. Look, when he came to this earth, we keep saying it over and over and over, suffering servant. It wasn't too long ago that we saw Jesus on his knees washing the feet of his disciples. Servant. Serving. Can I tell you something? When Revelation talks about Jesus, it talks about him sitting on his throne Robe dipped in blood, waiting to return and redeem his people with a sword coming out of his mouth. That's the, that's the language of Revelation. And so somewhere, there is this shift from Jesus as a servant to Jesus as reigning Lord on his throne. Where now, we wash his feet. Are you with me? Where we're not even worthy to sit in him. yes. He continues to lead by example, show us love. But friends, as he sits at the host here, let me tell you something about Christ. He can't not be the host. And I love the image of Jesus being the host in the home. Uh, How many of you guys growing up had the little deal, God bless this house over your thing, you know? Okay, two of us, good thought that would really connect. Just blew it. Um, well, I, I did anyway. God bless this house. It was all over our deal. And have you ever stopped to think about that? It's pretty funny, right? God bless this house. Like, what does that mean? Like the shingles? You know, like I don't even, right? But the image, listen to this. The image of God infiltrating the home, becoming the host of the home, being the thing that daily as a home, as parents... Men and women, college students, daily, you're saying, God, would you be the host? Would you be the reigning Lord in this home? Reality is there's been a lot of trashy things that have happened in your house. There's been a lot of wretched things that have happened in your room. What does it look like to invite Christ into your home and to say, God, we don't wanna, we don't wanna be your host here. Like we're inviting you to some dinner. Why don't you be the host? Why don't we sit at your feet and hear from you? 
Why don't we communicate to our children the truths coming from you and not from ourselves? I love this image of Christ as the host. He can't not be the host. He's risen and he's on his way to the right hand of God the Father. Verse 31. Then their eyes were opened. Remember? They haven't known that this is Jesus. They've just been hanging out together, right? Kind of interesting. Their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he, what's the word there? Disappeared from their sight. Is, it, is this strange to anyone else? Can you, can you picture these two individuals? Cleopas and this other, whoever he is, she, whatever. They're sitting there. Jesus is breaking the bread. And here's what I imagine. Look, the scripture doesn't say this, okay? But we can assume because we see language like this later. As he breaks the bread, they begin like hearing his voice. And as he breaks the bread, maybe their attention is drawn to his wounds. We know that his wounds were visible because they are later in the scriptures. And so all of a sudden, their eyes supernaturally are opened and they're hearing Christ and they're seeing Christ and they see Christ and then he disappears. It's like, what? <laughs> can, can you imagine when the, when the two guys or when the two individuals looked at each other? You know, can you, can you imagine? It's like, you know, what did there? You know, it's just a, this amazing moment. Now, there's a lot of things going on here. First of all, as they see Christ, it reminds us what last week what we talked about, the timing of Jesus. Remember when he comes up on the side of the road and what I, what I said? Like, why didn't Jesus just be like, hey, here I am. I've raised from the dead, you see? It's awesome. I'm living. Why doesn't he do that? Because you and I both know that if he walks up at that moment, their downtrodden faces become faces of joy. Instantaneously, they're excited because he's risen. And what we talked about last week was the timing of Christ isn't often our timing. The dialogue is crucial. The teaching is necessary. The opening the Old Testament before them is so vitally important. And at this moment, as he breaks the bread and they begin to hear his voice and see that it's the risen Christ, their eyes are opened and all of a sudden they see who it is. The affirmation of that moment. Can you imagine the weight of that? Remember? You're weighted down because you've told everyone that He's the Messiah. Can you imagine now what's happening? He is! He's a, you know, and, you, and like maybe the buddies were like, dude, did you see that? You know, like they're just making sure, you know, like, hey, is that? Yeah. There He is, the risen Christ. Disappeared. Now, next question. Uh, what's up with the disappearing, right? Like, is it, like that's weird, you know? Um, first of all, we've already just talked about He's no longer Christ as we knew Him. Something has happened. Now, when Lazarus raises from the dead, you guys remember the story of Lazarus? Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. I'll, let me tell you this about Lazarus. Later, okay, like when he's raised from the dead, he's still in a physical body. Are you guys with me? It's not like all of a sudden he's been resurrected. He's simply been raised from the dead. you guys understand the difference? He's dead. He's raised from, uh, he's raised from the dead. When Jesus is resurrected, 
Yes, he's still in the physical body, but there's something spiritual and supernatural about his body as well. A kind of glorified body, if you will. Now, there's not much scripture that talks about Jesus in this in-between piece. And so it'd be dumb of us to try to assume a lot of things. But seeing him disappear, seeing him kind of this, this weird movement that he'll have through the rest of the gospel tells us that his physical being has somehow shifted and he disappears and these two individuals are super encouraged especially indicated by verse 32 they asked each other were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures the gospel of Luke could have recorded so many things at this moment don't you agree Like they could have recorded this like girlish excitement out of these two individuals. No offense, girls, you know. You guys get excited and you vocalize it to the world. You know what I mean? It's great. It's what we love about you, kind of, you know. There could have been all these things that that were vocalized. But in this moment, what does the Gospel of Luke uh, vocalize about these two individuals? Were not our hearts burning as he opened the Scriptures to us? This amazing picture of as he spoke, their hearts were just... For those of you that know anything about the Old Testament, there's one story that I think of when I hear hearts burning. There was this prophet, Jeremiah, um, who had, more often than not, the, uh, the privilege of sharing disastrous news with the nation of Israel. <laughs> In fact... Um, More often than not, he was telling people that they were going to be um, sent to Babylon and that they were going to die. Okay? Not the best job, right? But God chose him to do it. And he wrestles with that. And on this this one day, he's talking to the high priest in Jeremiah chapter 20. And the high priest doesn't like him at all. And so he ends up sending him to the barracks, beats him. Let's him out the next day, and then Jeremiah goes right back to him, changes his name to a name that means like destruction, essentially. <laughs> and at the end of this entire story, uh, put up this passage. It's already up. Amazing. Verse 8. Whenever I speak, this is Jeremiah wrestling with the Lord. Whenever I speak, I cry out proclaiming violence and destruction. In other words, he's saying like, look, I'm a prophet that tells people about violence and destruction. He tells the high priest, you and your family are going to be deported to Babylon and you're all going to die. That's what he says. So the word of the Lord has brought me insult and reproach all day long. If you're telling people that they're going to be deported and die, that normally doesn't go over too well with the parties involved. Are you guys with me? That's what he's saying. Like I get insulted. This is, comes back on me all day long. Verse 9. But if I say, I will not mention him or speak any more in his name... His word is in my heart like a fire. A fire shut up in my bones. I am weary of holding it in. Indeed, say it with me, I cannot. As wretched as the news is that Jeremiah delivers to the parties that he delivers to, he can't hold it in. It burns too deeply. 
it cuts too sharply. And he says, I am ti- I can't, like it's impossible. It has to come out. Now what I love about those two verses, hold that thought with me, is we see Jesus, A, opening the eyes of these two individuals, and then we see him opening, my friends, opening the scriptures before them. Were our hearts not burning when he opened the scriptures to us? I love this image in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 3. Uh, those of you guys who remember, when Jesus is baptized, what opens? Anyone? What opens? The heavens opens, and you guys will remember what comes out of the heavens? A dove representing the Holy Spirit. This idea of, as Christ is baptized, this tremendous opening of the heavens. And then one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of Luke, especially when it comes to prayer, is found in Luke chapter 11. And I love it. At the end of that, at the end of that passage, it says, Knock, and the door will be what? Open for you. Let me connect opening and burning real quick, if, you, if I may. When Christ, like only Christ can, takes your dead heart, your sin-filled, wretched, depraved heart, and He opens your heart, and you understand the Gospel for the first time, and the second time, and the third time, and the fourth time, He floodgates His grace over that wretched heart of yours. And we get this tremendous image of Jesus as being the great opener, if you will. And friends, once He has opened your hearts, the image that we get from these two individuals and from Jeremiah is there should be a correlating burning. My heart is no longer dead. I'm alive in Christ Jesus. And so if I'm made alive in Christ, dead in my transgressions, then the Word should burn inside of here. And what we should be communicating to each other is, I can't hold it in. I'm weary. Indeed, I cannot. Do you relate? I know you relate to the opening piece. Because that's what we love to claim. God, thank you for opening my heart so that, and then you, and we just skip past everything so that you opened heaven so that one day it'll be awesome. But what about until then? Does the word burn within you? Now, obviously, there's a couple implications to the word burning within you that you're reading the word. I, I've talked to many of you guys, and you know, we say this all the time, that our biggest struggle here is consistency in the Word of God, right? And some of you have tried discipline plans, and we talk about how discipline can't be the means to an end, it's a means. Let me ask you guys this. As you read the Word, because you fall more deeply in love with God, there is, there is this thing strangely that happens when you simply ask God to speak. And you open His Word and you say, God, will you be the interpreter? God, will you be the communicator? God, will you take these moments of silence and speak to me? I talk to so many people who all they do is they take their Bibles, 
They take their Bibles and they open to Matthew chapter 1 and they read Matthew chapter 1 and then they close their Bibles and mentally they're thinking, I'm a better person. (laughs) That is not the biblical picture of grace or faith or righteousness, my friends. When was the last time you just said, God, will you speak to me in a way that causes my heart to burn? Are you asking for it? Is what I'm saying. Is it something you desire? If it is, then we should be crying out for it, shouldn't we? God, give me a burning. Give me a longing. So much so that I have to say, it's shut up in there and it has to get out. And when it gets out, wouldn't it be noticeable? So we pause and just ask each other, is it getting out? Or is it locked up inside of there because it doesn't burn? These two guys or individuals are just, weren't our hearts burning? I love the prophet Jeremiah. Look what happens next. Things get interesting. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. This is interesting, isn't it? Because uh, they, they've just set up camp and they've invited Jesus. Why, everyone? Because it was, it was dark. How many of you guys don't like to drive at night? Anyone? Okay. My grandma is raising her hand wherever she's at. You're right? Yeah. At night, it like, again, things are dicey. They don't, they don't bat an eye here. They just saw the risen Christ. We're headed to Jerusalem. And you imagine them like grabbing their cloaks, you know, and putting them on. And, and, and the picture that I get in my mind is like just, have you guys ever been uh, at, at the mall with someone who walks really, really fast or anywhere really? You know, and you're like trying to catch up. It's like in between a skip and a scurry and a run and a hop, you know? It's like some weird like scuffle thing. You're just like, what is that? You know, that, that's what I picture here. They're like kind of jogging, but kind of, like they're just excited. They just saw the risen Christ. They're going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to look for the disciples. They're going to bust open and say, he is alive. So they head to Jerusalem and their scurry shuffle thing. Look at this. There they found the 11 and those with them assembled together. This is weighty to me. I think of um, I think of Luke chapter nine, when Jesus calls them together, the twelve, and says, "I give you all authority and power. I want you to go out and I want you to cast out demons." I imagine them together at the Lord's Supper around the table, arguing about which one of them is going to betray, but together. As he's crucified, they're not together. As he's crucified, there's no semblance of what the disciples are. They're scared. But here, in this moment, they're what? Together. Something has happened that has gathered them together. And we we don't know why these two individuals coming from Emmaus know that they're there. We don't know like how they would know that or if they were you know, asking around, hey, where are the disciples? And people pointed. We don't know any of that. All we know is the 11 were in a room. These two individuals from Emmaus pop open the door and look at what happens. They were saying, the, the disciples, it is true. The Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. So imagine this, you're one of the two coming from Emmaus. 
You're psyched because you think you've got this awesome story to tell everybody. You bust open the door and you're getting ready to say, and all the people gathered there say, it is true. He's shown himself to Simon. Can you imagine that moment? What a beautiful moment. Now, uh, Simon, you're like, hold on a second. Like that part wasn't in the scripture. It's not. It's, it's interesting here. Sometime in between all this conversation and Emmaus and everything, he's appeared to Simon Peter. Uh, there's not a confirmation of that in the Gospels, but there is in 1 Corinthians 15.5, where the writer says, and he appeared to Simon. So there's this confirmation from their vantage point. He is risen, he's appeared to Simon, and then look at this in verse 35. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. Do you guys get this scene? This is a crazy scene, alright? If you picture a bunch of guys, like being real, like, guy here, you know, they're like, yeah, he's risen. You know, it's okay. You know, that's how guys are. They sometimes lack. No, this is not one of those moments. This is a bunch of guys who are so excited. These two individuals from Emmaus, you will never believe what happened. Actually, yeah, you will, because you just saw the, you guys are with me, you know? But listen to this. He, he came up to us on the way. And then it was brilliant. He opened the entire scriptures for us. He'll do that same thing for the apostles here in a couple of weeks. And then all of a sudden, as he broke the bread and we saw the scars and we heard his voice, we recognized him. It's true. Can you imagine this moment? This is a communal confirmation. This is high fives. This is all of our despair has now turned to hope. This is a room filled with joy. He is risen. He's risen indeed and not in the Sunday school answer way. It is true. It's happened. What we were fearful of not happening has happened. Can the weight of that sink on your shoulders? Now, when I asked you guys last week, why or why not do you believe that He's risen? What I did is I asked some people why they believe He's risen. In fact, 21 people. And I think it's one thing for us to sit in this room and imagine a communal confirmation that He's risen. I think it's another thing to experience it. And so here's what we're about to do. In this story, only a few. We're about to hear the stories of 21 individuals and why they believe He's risen. I want you to watch, I want you to listen, I want you to let the weight of it sink on your shoulders. I want each of us in this room to have some church in here right now. Check out the screens. They can raise the dead is miraculous. I relied on Christ and my heart Look at the witness of the disciples. They claimed he was alive. The religious leaders could have squelched this by pointing to an occupied tomb, but couldn't. Either the disciples were morons who got themselves killed by stealing the body, 
where they really did see a risen Christ. He is risen because I am no longer who I used to be. I cannot deny the working of Jesus in my life as he reveals my sin and empowers me to change. I know that Christ is risen because of the desire I have to not sin. That can only be explained by his grace and the hope that I now have that there is a sovereign Savior drawing me unto himself. I believe that Jesus is risen because of how the disciples' lives were transformed after seeing him alive after the crucifixion and how they were willing to die for this message, knowing that they would be with Jesus once again. I still see this transformation take place today with everyone that is around me. More than what I feel is proof. I have read not only in the Bible, but history in general, that Christ is risen. My heart feels his presence within me. Stronger than any other bond or feeling, it is him reassuring me that he is my Savior, the risen King. I believe he is risen because without his resurrection, I would be dead in my sin. My life has been resurrected from the lowly pit to a glorious place of love in Christ. Through my experiences, I have shared in his sufferings so that he would be glorified through my resurrected and transformed heart. I believe that he is risen because I can see sin has lost its power. The evidence is in the lives around me. The disciples were almost immediately transformed from men who were hopeless and fearful about the crucifixion into men who were confident and bold witnesses of the resurrection. Without Christ rising, life loses hope and purpose. I believe that he is risen because if he hasn't, I have no foundation of faith whatsoever. We are sinful and depraved, but without the resurrection, we are sinful, depraved, and without hope. Because he lives within me and has rescued me from myself. Because he fixed my heart. Because I see a true connection between both life and scripture, revealing the risen Christ continuing to heal, renew, and restore all the brokenness in me, around me, and even despite of me. Dead things don't give life, but Jesus is alive and active. I know that Christ is risen because he has resurrected my own life. When I met Jesus, he brought clarity to my confused mind and abounding love into my hateful heart. Moving a mountain would be awesome, and raising the dead is miraculous, but changing my heart is the most incredible thing I've ever witnessed. What I've witnessed and continue to witness in my life is the intervention of a living, loving God. The way I live now compared to how I used to can only be explained by a risen Christ. Because when I was at my lowest and refused to acknowledge him for who he truly is, the rocks around me begin to cry out. A while back, I faced a storm that I thought I could never get through. I relied on Christ so much, he became so real to me. So real that I would pray for comfort and that he could just hold me, and I would feel his arms wrapped around me. As crazy as that sounds, I have no doubt he is risen. Evidence and experience. The evidence is too overwhelming, and the experience is undeniable. What do you do after that? Except say, praise God. 21 hearts. I say, I believe because he has changed me. But it's at this point that we have failed as a national church, as a global church. As we've become communities that do very well at gathering and celebrating, at communing and giving each other hugs, at joining together 
and celebrating the things that God has done. But can I ask you the poignant question that must be asked? So now what? I've heard people say in the last week, the resurrection is the crux of my faith. If the resurrection doesn't happen, I have no hope. So I ask, what if it did happen? What if He is risen? What if you do believe He's alive? Then how does that translate? Does it translate into a burning in your heart that won't be kept in? I have to get it out. Instead of two individuals being downtrodden because they've told people and they're fearful now that it's not true, what if it is true? Then that means every person you tell, you never have to walk away downtrodden because you know you're sharing the truth. You know you're communicating the very words of God, not your own. What does that weight look like? What does that burn look like, church? What does that aliveness look like? Is He resurrected or not? And if He is, then the church would show itself because the burn cannot be contained. It will not be contained. The Gospel has to go. And that's what we see in that room of men. Once they said it was true, there was no turning back. Once they saw the risen Christ, there was no more. He's not alive. It became their mission to tell the world that it is true. Is it your mission? Is that the passion that makes your heart beat? Church, it's time to come alive. If He is alive, then we must represent Him as the King who sits on a throne, not some guy in a tomb. That's the resurrection power. That's the sharing and the sufferings and the fellowship of Christ like Paul talked about in Philippians chapter 3. So church, I say stand up with me now. Will the power of the resurrection by the intervening of the Holy Spirit connect head and heart in you so that you may go with a soul that burns with the message that our God reigns? Time will tell. Time will tell. But we're going to pray for that right now. Are you with me? We're going to pray for that. We're going to ask God for the burn. We're going to ask God for the resurrection power. And wherever you're standing, I'd invite you to pray with me now. Father God, reveal to us in this moment your aliveness. Remind us of that we're no longer dead in our transgressions, but that through Your grace, we're a new creation. 
saved by the blood of the Passover lamb. God, reveal that. I pray that you'll empower us. Give us courage. God, will you give us a voice for the gospel? If the resurrection is is the crux, then God, empower us to tell the world that you're alive. God, take away our fears. Take away our needs and desires to make those around us happy. And put the burden and the weight of an empty tomb on our lips and on our heart daily. We pray this believing as the high priest that you're hearing us, believing that you can give us the burn, believing that you can connect head and heart. Oh God, you have risen. You have risen indeed.